Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are celebrating travel from our studios uh, in the metro Washington, D.C. area. And today's show, dear, I think is really a celebration of gospel, uh, panda conservation, and history. Indeed it is. First off on World Footprints, Coretta Scott King illustrator and award-winning artist Michelle Wood joins us to talk about her newest book, I See the Rhythm of Gospel. Then TV naturalist Nigel Marvin, the Jack Hanna of Britain, will stop to talk about his latest adventures of living on panda reserves in China. And finally, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Isabel Wilkerson shares the stories and inspiration of a book 15 years in the making, The Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story about America's great migration. Almost 6 million African Americans left the American South from 1915 to 1970 and in the process reshaped American society and the world. And as always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And of course, we look forward to connecting with you through the week on our multiple social networks, all which you can find from our website and sign up at worldfootprints.com. And, of course, if you're on the go, you can take us with you through our mobile app on Stitcher, again, which you can find on our website at worldfootprints.com, along with the multiple resources we have for you and your travel pleasure. Michelle Wood is an artist whose work reflects a deep sense of history and place. As a painter, illustrator, designer, and writer, she has gained wide recognition and has earned multiple awards, including the prestigious American Book Award for her first book, Going Back Home. She's also won a Coretta Scott King Illustrator Award from the American Library Association for her book, I See the Rhythm. And Michelle's artistry explodes in a new book, I See the Rhythm of Gospel, and we're so pleased to welcome her to our show. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. This book, this new book, it, it, the colors are so vibrant, and uh, we love this book. And I understand this is really the first time the art form of gospel music has been blended with black history in a book. What led you and your, your partner in rhythm, I'm calling her, uh, Toyomi, I guess, to, to create this work? Hmm. Um, this is kind of uh, a different journey. Um, how we got started or how I got started is that an idea had came to me. Um, it was backwards. Our format is backwards where the writing, the artists come first and then the writing comes afterwards. And in this book, it was the idea of I wanted to do gospel and I felt it in my spirit to do it. And I sat on the idea for about a year until I approached Toy. Um, we met in San Diego and decided to work together as we talked about the project. Um, so that's how it initially came about. The book covers some monumental moments in black history, stretching way back to the beginning of slavery in the, in the 1500s. How were you able to condense this history into an illustrative picture book? There's so much history, it's very hard to narrow that down because we have to weigh out who had the most influence at that time period, um, who stood out more than others, 
And uh, because there's so many musicians, as you look at the time period that uh, came about and that had influence, and some lasted more decades than others and more influence, like the the women of uh, gospel music. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Shirley Caesar of her time period, and one person that I fought for was Rosetta Thorpe. Because when I saw her and read her life story, and then saw some, you can go on YouTube and see videos of her and listen to her guitar and the people that she influenced. It was, she was very radical, reminding me of, 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 uh, how they used to say about Bo Diddley when he went to, uh, chess, chess records after he went to VJ records and they said he was too radical and then he goes to chess records and he blows up. But when you have, uh, Rosetta Tharp and you listen to her guitar playing, where she had that uh, blues influence, but she brought that gospel sound, mm-hmm. and she was just uh, she was just a, a pioneer of her time, and she was before her time to me. So we looked for pioneers and people who were out front, um, and that's how we narrowed it down. It was very difficult for us, but the things that I put in my paintings, I tried to translate. I have to look at clothes. I have to look at the time period, I have to look at, um, like in the 50s, it's more pastels or it's how the buildings were. Or, or, and I didn't want to focus on just the musicians. I wanted to focus on the people as well. The reflection, just like I see the rhythm, it was a reflection of that time period, of that decade, and of the people. And that's what we wanted to really focus more on than not just the musician, but what affected, you know, what was going on during that decade. This book really is transcendent of just the uh, experience of African Americans from a, from a religious standpoint. It covers the totality of history, and it connects it to so many things that have happened around the world. How did yes. you arrive at the approach for tying in early history from the 15th century to the arrival of Barack Obama in 2008? That was quite a journey, as uh, you alluded to earlier. Yes, it is a journey, but it's our history. It's America's history. And um, how do we arrive at that point is you start from the beginning, um, and starting from Africa and the influence of Africa on American, you know, American music and how um, the um, the call and response that you have in the music and the drums and and uh, everything is all connected to one. You even have um, where the we even get to jazz where there's a little bit of influence there where you have a Thomas Dorsey I'm going through so many things that are going through my mind I have Thomas Dorsey where his influence was that rhythm sound was the blues sound but it got into gospel and he um and that's where he found it with gospel in 1930 1932 I'm trying to think of all the dates you just have to go through all the research and and try to incorporate as much as possible and connect the dots as much as possible as you can. But we're all connected. Even from this rhythm, the holy hip-hop, you find those rhythms, those same rhythms are still in the music. And it's like the core of the music, the core of the beat. Um, and it's like the timekeeper, the drummer is the timekeeper. So it's it's um, all linked together. How does one go about capturing history and distilling it to a, a single 
image. How is that challenge for you? I don't see my, my work as just a single image because it's a continuation from one image to another of like the image that is about slavery and about Harriet Tubman. And in that, you do have a little girl that's in the back of it. Her name is Missy, and she's going through the journeys with you. And she's going through each page as you go through it. And in that painting, there's different symbols that's layering and that's telling the history and indicating, like, the the leaf that's on her dress, that they're going north and, and where they're going is to Canada. But during that time period um, and, and researching the flags and of that time period, it wasn't a leaf. But we wanted to, com- to communicate that more literally than to confuse you. And then, um, and like the Underground Railroad, having the railroad in the water. And there's many layers, and I don't see it as one image. I see it as a continuation of a story that continues to, you know, as you turn the page, I wanted you to visualize and feel like you're in that decade and not just um, they're all being the same. I want you, when you turn that page, that you see that image, that you're in that a decade, and then you move on to the next decade, and Missy, the images in each painting, is there with you as you go through the the, the history. You know, I was I was going to ask you about um, Missy because uh, she is she's a hidden. I mean, this little girl, as you mentioned, it goes through kind of vicariously the history with the the characters that you painted, and I love as a, as a little girl, I've always loved those. Um, those the puzzles and those pictures where you have to find the you know images within mm-hmm. images, and there's a couple of pages you did such a masterful job of of camouflaging her. Um, there's <laughs> there's a, the pigtails. Yeah, that's the key. That's the giveaway. Look for the so pigtails. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Missy's all is based on me and my nickname when I was a little girl. Name is Missy. And the only people that will call me Missy are family members. So till this day, if I go out and someone says Missy, I know that it's a family member. And uh, my mother called me Missy, and she would tell me and always encourage me, there's more to see than Indiana. There's more outside your boundaries. So uh, my mother didn't work in um, – uh, she didn't have – uh, a lot of money, but when she did, she would take me to New York or she will take me to the Bahamas or Kings Island or wherever she could take me, Chicago, to the Science Museum. She would just take me and show me there's more to see. So in putting it in I See the Rhythm, I also, you know, start noticing that it was in my other paintings, like in going back home, Missy's there sitting on her aunt's knee mm-hmm. and she's getting her hair braided. So subconsciously, I did it at first. It wasn't a conscious decision to do it. And, I, you know, as I noticed in some of my paintings, she just continued to appear. And just like in another book I did, Just Like Me, uh, I talked about myself because we wanted to do self-portraits. There's 14 different artists doing self-portraits. But Missy just uh, came about more subconsciously and then now, She's just a fabric. She's there all the time. Well, I'm more noticing her, and I'm more comfortable in uh, presenting her and and um, telling people that's me, that that's Missy as a little girl. One of the aspects that makes this a really contemporary book is the CD that, just as the book covers the gamut of the African-American experience through music, talk about 
how the music and the book really come together to tell this story. The music is very important to the book, and that was one of the things that we wanted for the book because I see the rhythm. Uh, we had such a large request to have a CD because it was used. Uh, we, as we go into different schools, teachers will request for us to bring music, or people would request that we have music for this particular book. And we wanted you to be able to go through the decades and that you'll be able to have the music uh, because you you learn so many, on so many different levels, you learn visually, you learn by reading, you learn um, by hearing, and by hearing that music and having the visual as well as Toy's wonderful writing, this, this is just three ways for you to learn and so and to complement each other. And it was very important, like Mahalia Jackson, to have her voice. Um, to have uh, Holy Culture and Fred Hammond and um, I believe it's C.C. Winans that's on here. And also, I used to sell that song, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. I worked at a bookstore. It's a Christian bookstore when I came back to Indianapolis because I had um, uh, stopped working for a while, and I went to work at a Christian bookstore. And I used to sell Hallelujah Pray. And I used to tell people how wonderful that song is. And I'm so amazed that it's on our, um, on our CD. Because she used to have this, this, this uh, DVD. Um, it was the throne room. It wasn't the CD. It was the DVD. And how they choreographed all the songs to come together. And it was um, because they started out in high praise and worship, and then she went in and she put on her dress, and she went into Hallelujah Praise before then, I think, and I loved how that how that worked together, and it's so ironic that today we have that on our CD, and I think she's just wonderful and such a great spirit, and um, on that, this having that CD on our book was just amazing and to have that for people to share and to play that and to read in that way it's all there tangible for you and for the child for the teacher or the parent uh and you're constantly learning and teaching at the same time mm-hmm. and it's fun <laughs> it's fun michelle one of the things that is remarkable from my standpoint about the book is that it really takes one all over the world from Bronzeville on Chicago's south side to Harlem to South Africa. It touches on a lot of places that speak to me. And you spoke about the impact of some of these travels that uh, even with uh, your mom on modest means that you were able to experience the world, uh, even relatively close to Indianapolis. And so this is a very powerful book in that regard for those who may not have the means, but they can begin to see the connections from so many of these important places all over that have had a say, not just in African-American history, but in black history and African history. Yes, yes. Well, in black history... And as well as, uh, you know, and I say very much that it's America's history because I don't pinpoint it to just to say it's black history. America is, is such a melting pot, and it's our history. And I want also children to be proud, African-American children, to be proud of their history and their contribution 
to society is it's so much that we've done mm -hmm. and it's so much that we've uh that we've captured in this book and so much to be proud of and i look at the faith you know we had to have had so much faith and that's so much that you can embody is to have, you know, faith and to believe and to believe in a future, to believe that there's something better and to keep pushing and keep pushing and push through slavery and depression and, and, um, as a, and then the civil rights movement and just keep going until we're here today and we're still pushing forward. And uh, and it's amazing how much strength that we have as people, mm -hmm. you know, and that we, we're growing and we have a black president now. But look at the person that prayed before, the person that had the faith and to get through those troubled times to get to where we are today. And I am so thankful for those that have gone before us and for those that are paving the way today. Indeed, and you know, I was going to ask you, kind of touching on the the, the gospel uh, theme of this book, I was going to ask you what you hope and want readers to take away from from reading this book, and if part of um, what you desire is just a uh, an acknowledgement and um, an appreciation for. Um, you know the the Lord in in our lives and in in the grace that that we we He gives us every day is that part of part of uh, what you hope? That is part of it. I mean, that is part of me and my fabrication that I had so much faith in in the ability because I came from my mother. She had so much strength and she had so much faith and hope and she always told me to have hope and to have faith. And I want people to come come away with this with an exploration that, and that they have explored um, a little bit, a taste of our history because there's so much more that we didn't incorporate um, and that they have an appreciation for our culture as, you know, a little more than they did before mm -hmm. and that they'll be proud, especially the children, they're proud of that history um, because I always say that you got to know where you came from in order to know where you're going. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I kind of uh, I kind of feel that there is perhaps another I Have a Rhythm book coming up at some point. Am, am, I, uh, am I off base or what do you have coming next? Um. Well, we're we're talking about some things now, uh -huh. and we're we're trying to move forward. We both are on some uh, different schedules right now. We're coming back together, and we are going to put um, uh, some things together. Hopefully, you know, in the near future, we'll have something. I'm I'm uh, I'm. I'm being prayerful about it. <laughs> well, well, we, I hope I danced around that. <laughs> well, we, we, we look, we look forward to uh, to whatever you're doing next, uh, Michelle. But, uh, but uh, I, I see the rhythm of gospel is a wonderful book, and I thank you for coming on our show today to to share to share your your artistry and the history. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure being on your show. After the break, TV naturalist Nigel Marvin takes us inside the world of pandas. Everyone thinks that they're slow-moving and cuddly and harmless. Well, in fact, I wouldn't get very close to an adult panda in captivity or in the wild. Next on World Footprints Radio.
Hi, I'm Alex from Baltimore, Maryland, and Tanyan Ian brought me to Baltimore by listening to Wolf Footprints Radio. Visit LostPoundsInDays.com today. Are you tired of feeling sluggish? Do you have a little bulge in the waist? Or maybe your girls need a little lift? Look and feel great in days. Visit LostPoundsInDays.com today. Still have baby weight or a beer belly? Then today is your day. Visit LostPoundsInDays.com. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. I have a dream today. Hi, I'm Isaac Newton Ferris, Jr., President and CEO of the King Center in Atlanta. My Uncle Martin's words still inspire us today, but his vision cannot be fully realized unless we join together to strengthen our communities through everyday acts of service to others. Honor his memory this King Day and throughout the year by volunteering in your community. This message brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service, the King Center, NAB, and this station. Hi, I'm Johannes from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to you and I want you to support Iron Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Producer and TV naturalist Nigel Marvin has traveled the world on many animal adventures. He swam with sharks, wrestled alligators, donated blood to mosquitoes and leeches in the interest of science and research, and most recently he's rolled around with baby pandas in China. Nigel has produced and starred on a number of shows for a variety of networks such as Meerkats, Anacondas, Bloodsuckers, Panda Week, and Prehistoric Park. I don't know from where Nigel's adventures will take him next, but he spending some time with us on World Footprints. Nigel, welcome. Nice to speak to you. Well, you've had a storied uh, career uh, starting as a BBC producer in the field before landing your dream job with David Attenborough. Tell us how you got started. Yeah, well, I did botany and zoology at Bristol, and that's the home of the Natural History Unit, which is sort of the Hollywood of wildlife filmmaking, Bristol in southwest England, and I got a job there as a worm wrangler. That was my first ever job, rambling, r- wrangling earthworms in front of the camera and then you know as you say I I got a job as researcher with David Attenborough he was my hero ever since I've been a little boy and then it followed along from there I became a producer then they were looking for a a British Steve Irwin and that's how I got in front of the camera so you know I have to pinch myself sometimes that I'm actually being paid to do what I do on holiday it's terrific fun seeing animals and traveling all around the world you know I I wouldn't swap my life for anything initially you were camera shy but you took a leap and made your screen debut, uh, crawling in with an aardvark burrow in search of a giant python. What was behind that? Well, yeah, they, they I'd say they wanted a, a British Steve Irwin, and, um, you know, I thought, well, why don't we do a thing called Giants, where I compare myself to the biggest animals that are around today, um, and that was a big tarantula the size of a dinner plate that crawled <laughs> on my face. Uh. And, 
crawling in a burrow to see a, a, a python. That was probably one of the most scariest moments of my career, actually. I'd, I've never had claustrophobia, but wiggling down a burrow was, was pretty scary. Um, and then, of course, because of that, the, the producers that made Walking with Dinosaurs said, wow, if we could get a person to, to look like they've travelled back in time and give scale to our wonderful dinosaur creations, then that would be brilliant for us. And that's how I started uh, travelling back in time to see dinosaurs. And, you know, the graphics are so good. When I'm an old man, I think I really will believe that I did travel back in time and see T-Rex and all the other things. Of course, every naturalist, if you could travel back in time, it would be wonderful to see some of the animals that uh, are extinct. So that's that's how it all happened. And now I'm spending a lot of time in uh, China, which is a truly wonderful country. Yeah, I love the country and studied there, uh, studied law there, actually, for a Oh, well, where, where were you, in Beijing? No, I was in Shanghai. Oh, and, great. And traveled around and have been back since. And one of the dream trips that I've been wanting to take is to the Panda Reserve, uh, but it's quite a quite a big distance from Shanghai or Beijing to uh, <laughs> to the reserve, and and so I'm 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 jealous of you, Ni- uh, Nigel, and certainly I'm going to insist the next time you go to please take your favorite radio crew here. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, you. No, that would be lovely. I've never I've never been to Shanghai, of course, with the expo there. You know, millions of people did this mm. year, but um, um, you know, the the, the Chinese uh, authorities have made me a panda ambassador, which is why I'm talking to you which is is really um you know publicizing how well they're doing at breeding pandas in captivity chengdu which is a city in central china yeah um, they bred 19 cubs this year which is a world record 19 really people used to think that pandas didn't like uh sex but in fact it's because we in the past didn't know how to match make properly Mm -hmm. a female is only on heat for a, a, a number of days two or three days in the year and if you get it wrong she will fight with the male but now they've worked that out and also pandas have twins and a mother never has enough milk um, for both twins to survive so one always used to die that's probably a throwback to when they didn't feed exclusively on bamboo and they were bears with a better diet but now if they have twins the mother never has enough milk Mm -hmm. they've worked out a really clever way where they switch the cubs in captivity and one spends quality time with mum the other one is fed on a bottle and in that way both of the babies survive which is why they're being so successful at breeding pandas in Chengdu and all around the world. And hopefully they will be able to re-release them back into the wild. So it's great fun seeing all that work going on. And, and, and as you say, I mean, it's so many people's dreams to go into an enclosure and be surrounded by a posse of giant panda babies, which is which is what I did, which was, you know, one of the most memorable highlights of my life, really. I mean, you know, I've always wanted to get up close to a giant panda, and, and that's that that happened for me in Chengdu. We saw a clip of you rolling around with the babies, and I can't tell you how adorable that looked. And and I know that the Chinese are very determined to conserve, preserve these animals, and I know they're very, very protective. And so I'm very interested to learn how you had the honor, received the honor of really living with these pandas for the for the last year, and and getting so so close, up close and personal with. As soon as I arrived, they realized that I absolutely love pandas. Uh, You know, I saw Chi-Chi, a famous giant panda at London Zoo, when I was a little boy and had a book about her. And ever since then, I've always wanted to meet pandas 
in captivity and in the wild. I've always wanted to cuddle a panda cub, which is what I did at Chengdu. And they also realized uh, when we went to Foping, which is in Shangxi province near Xi'an, where the famous mm-hmm. terracotta army are, about two or three hours from there is Foping Reserve, and that is the best place on earth to see wild pandas. Lots of people are doing it now because the trackers know how to find the pandas. You have to be reasonably fit to climb up the slopes and push your way through the bamboo forest, um, but uh, you know you, you have a good chance of seeing them, which I did. But of course, you know I couldn't have done it on my own. I, I wasn't a naturalist from the West going to China saying, oh yeah, I'm going to go and uh, find pandas on my own. I've built up a great friendship with the Chinese trackers who know that area like the back of their hand and the habit of the giant pandas. The reserve that you mentioned outside of Xi'an, and I've been, I was at Xi'an, and I didn't realize there was a reserve that, uh, that close, um, but is that where you saw a, a newborn brown panda cub, which I understand is very, very rare? Yeah, that was incredibly exciting. We, we, I was the first host ever to be filmed with a wild panda, which was exciting enough, and it was was a mother with a cub um, and the cub was about four months old and she was carrying it around in her mouth we didn't see that but that's how they move the uh, the cubs around like a, a cat carrying a kitten and then the next day we actually managed to find the cub and it turned out to be a brown cub it was only the fifth one known to science before I'd embarked on this project I really believed that all pandas were black and white but you do get a, a very rare color variety that's that's cream and brown, and this mm. cub was exactly like that. So that was very, very exciting, and we filmed that cub in the wild for the first time. With all of your interactions with giant pandas, how have your perceptions changed as a result of these interactions? Uh, yeah, very interesting question, that. Um, you think that they're soft and cuddly. In fact, they're not. The fur is very coarse and fibrous, so I suppose in many ways that's a little bit of a, a, a disappointment. And the other thing about them is everyone thinks that they're slow-moving and cuddly and harmless. Well, in fact, I wouldn't get very close to an adult panda in captivity or in the wild because, obviously, with a mouthful of teeth, that can crunch bamboo, they can do a lot of damage uh, to your arm. Uh, so um, there have been keepers, a keeper in the U.S. that was, uh, you know, had to have his arm amputated because he was bitten by a panda. So they're not quite as, as kind and benevolent and cuddly as we think they are. I mean, still wonderful animals, and as a, a zoologist, I love them because they're a bear that feeds on bamboo. I mean, that is remarkable that, you know, they, they've actually evolved to feed on bamboo. 99% of their diet is bamboo. Like all bears, they'll eat honey if they can find a, a, bee, a bee's nest, and if they come across a carcass, they will eat meat sometimes, but 99% of their diet is bamboo, and that to me is remarkable that there's a bear that can survive by feeding on bamboo. The Chinese are really determined to, to, keep, to, to preserve these animals. Talk about some of their conservation efforts and the successes. Um, and I know the Washington, our zoo, the Washington National Zoo, uh, is part of that uh, success, having, uh, having I think, birthed uh, two pandas. Uh, most recently, Taishan, who was just recently sent back to, uh, to China. But talk yeah. about some of the other uh, conservation efforts going on. Yeah, well, so as well as this very successful captive breeding program, San Diego Zoo have had five cubs. Uh, and as you say, your National Zoo... Uh, 
were too. So, you know, they're being bred very successfully. Most people don't know that all pandas now belong to China, wherever they are in the world. So if a cub is born, that belongs to the Chinese government and will eventually have to be returned to China. And there's a lot of great work being done in the wild too. The Chinese have set up 50 panda reserves. One of the problems is populations of pandas can become isolated and every 10 years or so, different species of bamboo can flower and then they die so there's no food for the pandas and they need to move somewhere else to get the right bamboo to feed on. So one of the main things they're doing now is building these natural corridors, almost like panda motorways between different areas of good habitat so the pandas can move if the bamboo dies off. And of course, they're totally protected. Um, you know, you'd be executed mm. if you uh, killed a panda in China. They are such a, uh, you know, an iconic Chinese animal and, and the Chinese people wouldn't want to kill one anyway. They, they're so proud of their pandas. Chengdu, in fact, Every taxi in the city has a panda on the bonnet. I mean, it's the panda <laughs> capital of the world, and they're so proud of their pandas at the breeding centre that, uh, you know, little children have got panda hats, and when you get out at Chengdu Airport, there's a big um, revolving panda on a clock, so the whole city is uh, dedicated to the panda. Um, but, no, thing, things are very good. I mean, George Schaller, who's a very famous American uh, biologist, um, a real expert on pandas, he's recently said that, you know, they've got, he's pretty optimistic about their future. And, uh, you know, 20 years ago, he thought that they, would, they were on the slippery slope to extinction. But with all the work that's being done with captive animals and these wild reserves, the future for the panda, the giant panda is... is, is China is such a booming country now with uh, urbanization just growing uh, leaps and bounds. Uh, what are some of the threats uh, that uh, are out there to the giant pandas? Well, I, I, I really think that the Chinese government and the Chinese people will save enough land for the giant pandas. So as long as you know, nothing goes wrong, there's a, you know, a war or something like that and the whole system collapses, there should be enough land set aside for the giant panda they live in mountainous slopes anyway so that helps because it's very difficult for people to utilize that land but um, you know people aren't going in and, and logging illegally or any of the other problems that you get in rainforests or forests in other parts of the world so as long as there's not massive um, road building schemes between the panda areas so they just can't move between different areas of bamboo I mean things are looking pretty optimistic for them. There, 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 there are no threats as long as the habitat can be protected. And Nigel, when you were there, or Jackie Chan made an appearance, and you mentioned that he actually adopted two pandas. And I'm wondering what that adoption means. Does that mean he has parental visiting rights, or <laughs> what does that mean? And how how was he able, or how is anyone able to adopt a panda? Uh, well, he he um, paid a, a large sum of money, which goes to the conservation research efforts at the Chengdu Panda Base. And um, two of the baby pandas, because he donated uh, all that money, are named after him. So they've they've been given his uh, name in China. Um, and, uh, you know, like many zoos in America, you can uh, adopt an animal, which, which means that you would be sent um, reports on how they're getting on and, on, on, and 
whether they bred successfully and all of those sorts of things. But of course, that doesn't give you the right to have a hands-on experience with the panda or any of the other animals that you adopt. Sure. It's just a way of just a way of fundraising. He was the first panda ambassador, and I was the second. So I was very proud of that. That um, you know, I was the first Westerner to become a panda ambassador and mm. to follow in the footsteps of a, a huge <laughs> action star. So you know, I, I was very proud to be given that uh, honor. You've done a lot of uh, or supported a lot of conservation efforts, and I know in 2008 you ran in the London Marathon on behalf of the Whale and Dolphin uh, Conservation Society. What, talk, talk a little bit about that before we go and, and just uh, some of your other uh, conservation efforts as well. Um, well, I, I'd say most of my time I'm so busy making films that I'm not actually um, spending enough time to help conservation causes as I'd like, and I'm hoping that um, you know I'll be able to do much more of that in the future if you can become... Uh, semi-famous in China and other parts of the world, then, uh, you know, what you say is listened to by, uh, you know, members of the public, and hopefully, you know, I can help animals in that way. For example, in China, my films are going to be shown, we've just finished another one about the remote parts of China, it's called Untamed China, and I've done a scene with cobras where I say, um, you know, people used to think that the blood of cobras could help your sight and if you eat the fresh innards of a cobra you know it can help with all sorts of problems that is of course stuff and nonsense right. um, you know, cobras are a great help to farmers feeding because they feed on rats and mice that would eat the grain crop and uh, you know even though it's not an overt conservation message hopefully that will get across as Chinese audiences become more and more interested in wildlife as has happened in in Britain and the uh, in the US, um, but I say the Whale and Dolphin Conservation Society. You know, I ran the London Marathon for them. They're a great organisation. You know, protecting dolphins and whales from pollution and, and and all of the other things that they're facing nowadays. And uh, you know, I, I support as many charities as I can in terms of giving talks or um, you know doing stuff for them. But say, hopefully. I can spend a greater percentage of my time doing that uh, over the next few years when I'm filming less. Nigel, if people want to follow you and your adventures, is there a place where they can go online? Yeah, nigelmarvin.com is my website, uh, and that will tell you what films are coming up, where I'm traveling. I'm, I'm doing some work now with, with Azamara Cruises, and we're doing some wildlife cruises where I give talks about my filming experiences and take people on uh, little adventures from the cruise ship, doing one to the Amazon and uh, one to the Mediterranean uh, Sea where I uh, you know, worked on Gerald Durrell's book, My Family and Other Animals, so I've got a lot of experience. Uh, so if people want to actually come with me on one of those adventures, you can also check out Hazanara Cruises. Nigel Marvin, producer, TV naturalist, and panda ambassador. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Coming up, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson warns us with the story of America's great migration. 90% of the people were, were stuck in the South at this time. They were living in a caste system that's almost unimaginable. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hello, this is Mertice Spadola from Gallery Mertice in Baltimore, Maryland. 
And I love World Footprint Radio. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Are you on a diet? Are you trying to lose weight? There's free support available online at partnersforweightloss.com. There's nothing to buy here, just a place to meet others and to talk about weight loss. Partnersforweightloss.com. Talk to other people who are interested in losing weight. Join a group. Tell about your own weight loss journey. Chat live with others who are interested in losing weight. It's all free. Partnersforweightloss.com. Hi, this is James K. from Los Angeles, California. And I just want to say I've traveled all over the world. But whenever I come back home, I always tune in to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's Great Migration by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson chronicles the story of six million African Americans who left the South from 1915 to 1970 in search of freedom and opportunity. In the process, they not only changed a nation, but changed the world. Over the course of writing this book, Isabel interviewed over a thousand people, and she shares her Great Migration story and why she wrote the book. It's quite emotional for me ever to speak in uh, the Washington, D.C. area because it is Washington that was the city of my parents' dreams. It was Washington that drew my mother from Rome, Georgia, uh, at the, toward the end of World War II, and my father the following decade from Petersburg, Virginia, where they met, and after a long courtship that went on for so long that I almost did not get here, <laughs> finally married and uh, had me, and without this great migration, I would not exist, which is in many respects why I even wrote this book. I wrote this book because I grew up around people who, in a neighborhood filled with people whose uh, parents had come from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. It was so predictable, so beautifully predictable, such a community of people who all had the same roots. And I grew up around uh, the, the elders in the community were all people who looked after one another and looked after the children. If you were walking down the street, there were people who would, who would say, well, we saw Isabel walking down the street, and where was she, and who was that boy that she was with? <laughs> And, uh, uh, and so there, were, there was a sense of community, and I didn't realize at the time that that community didn't just happen to be. That community had uh, sprung up because, uh, because people made a decision, the decision of their lives, to leave the only place that they'd ever known for a place that they had never seen in hopes that life would be better. And this is in so many ways the classic American universal story of how all Americans in some ways got on the soil one way or the other. Somebody had to endure a very difficult trip from far away in order for people to, for the United States to be populated as it is. And there was this migration that occurred uh, from the beginning of World War I until 
until the 1970s when the essential reason for the migration came to an, an end. That is the reason why Washington, D.C. looks the way that it is, the Washington, D.C. area looks the way that it is, the reason that Chicago looks the way that it is, New York, Detroit, Cleveland, Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, Oakland, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, all of the major cities of the North, the Midwest, and the West were changed forever by the individual decisions of six million people who decided that they did not want to take the caste system that they were under in the South for one more day. Here, Isabel gives us some perspective on what the Great Migration is and why growing up, few, if any, spoke of the Great Migration as such. Let me tell you a little bit about what the Great Migration is and why we never even talked about it. Growing up, I never heard the term Great Migration. My mother never said she was part of the Great Migration. When I was going out and doing the research on this book, I would interview people, I would go to senior centers, I would go to AARP meetings, I'd go to churches and uh, in, in New York, where everyone was from South Carolina, everyone was from South Carolina, and, um, and I would say to them, I'm, I'm doing a book about the Great Migration, and I just get blank looks, and I'd say, was anyone part of the Great Migration? Not a hand would go up. And then I would say, well, did anyone leave North Carolina or South Carolina or Georgia or Virginia between the years of 1918? Very few people would say that, because there were very few people who were still alive from that time, until 1970, and every hand would go up. And so that meant that they were part of what demographers call the Great Migration. Now, this Great Migration began during World War One and didn't end until 1970, and it involved six million people. Six million people. When this migration began, 90% of all African Americans were living in the South. 90%, in some ways, imprisoned, held captive, you might say, because they wanted, they would have wanted to get out, but they couldn't. There was no opportunity that they could be assured of that would allow them to be able to make a life for themselves uh, outside of the, the place of their birth. And so the world opened up when the North needed laborers. The North needed laborers during World War One because there was a war going on in Europe. Immigration from Europe came to a halt, and suddenly the foundries, the factories, the slaughterhouses, the steel mills, the railroads all needed work, and so they looked for the cheapest labor in the country, cheapest labor in the land, and that took them to African Americans in the South, and that's when they began to recruit. They began to recruit, in, but quietly, because the South did not want to lose their cheap labor. They did everything they could to keep these people from leaving. They would, uh, they would arrest people on the railroad platforms arrest them wholesale, had tickets, these are supposedly free people, Emancipation Proclamation had been passed 50 or more years before this, and yet they were arrested on the railroad platforms. They would arrest people in their seats on the train, once they were on the train with the tickets that they had worked so hard in order to save up for. And when those things didn't work, they would, they would, if there were too many people to arrest, they would wave the train on through, so these people had saved up for so long with their tickets ticket to freedom in their hand, the train wouldn't stop. And this was the power of the people who were in control and didn't want this cheap labor to leave. They made it very difficult for the people to leave. African Americans leaving the American South in search of a better life is a universal story that has played out time and time again throughout the course of human history. As Isabel tells us, African Americans left the South to escape a caste system known as Jim Crow, which perverted laws and social relationships to deny blacks their freedom. Jim Crow was, in fact, a caste system. These people were living under a caste system. The forebears of most African Americans in the North and the West, 90% of these, 90% of the people were, were stuck in the South at this time. They were living in a caste system that's almost unimaginable. 
there are no references in this book to restrooms or water fountains. None. Because we already know about that. We already know about that. What I wanted to do was find out what was it beyond that, because it wasn't limited to that. This cat system determined that from the moment you were born, you were assigned to a particular cat, which meant there were certain jobs you could have, certain jobs you couldn't have. And this is everyone of all races would have been assigned a particular cat, almost as if you were in India or some other part of the world. That meant that upon birth, there were certain things that you were allowed to do, certain things you were not allowed to do. You, if you were African American, there were you 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 must have, you had to step off the sidewalk. You could not shake the hand of a white person. You could not you could not look into the eye of a white person as you were greeting them. You had to wait to be spoken to before speaking to them first. That's just that's just normal protocol that was accepted or expected at the time. But it went so much farther than that. It meant that a black person and a white person in Birmingham it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person in Birmingham to play checkers together against the law. Someone must have seen a black person and a white person playing checkers on some park bench somewhere in Birmingham and said and saw they were having this too good a time <laughs> and decided that the entire foundation of the South, the Southern uh, civilization, was in peril if we permitted this to happen and made that a law. And this, this, meant, this hurt everybody. It hurt the white person who wanted to play checkers with this, their friend or the person they were playing with. I mean, it, it's hard to believe, but a lot of people think of the, the, the uh, cost to black people, and the cost was, more born, was much harshly, more harshly borne by black people than any other group. But it also meant that many people who might have been the best of friends didn't even have the opportunity to even meet one another or spend time with one another. Isabel describes how the artificial nature of Jim Crow used violence to enforce compliance to it. And because it was so artificial and so hard to control people in such a manner, the only way that this system, this caste system, could be maintained was with extreme force and violence. Violence to such a degree that every four days, somewhere in the South, an African American was lynched that every four days from the time just before Plessy versus Ferguson, before the beginning of the Jim Crow uh, laws were when it went into effect, and in a couple of, uh, several decades into the Great Migration, an African American was lynched every four days. That was what it took to maintain such an artificial caste system that meant that it was so extreme that there needed to be reminders to everyone of what was at stake if anyone were to break the law, black or white. And some, there were whites who suffered also under the same rule. There were whites who might have lost all their business if they were seen breaking the rules. So the caste system was in some ways, uh, it, was, it was a caste system, C-A-S-T-E, but almost, if you think about the other word, caste, that holds you in a fixed place, everyone was held in a fixed place in the same way that a caste does. As Isabel describes the three ways of migration to the North, Midwest, and West, she shares why the journey of freedom was so important and why being on the right side of history and Northern geography matter to African Americans. Which we're all familiar with, which takes people from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia to Washington, D.C., which in other parts of the country, they'll say, well, Washington's not the North. If you're in Mississippi, Washington is the North. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing, just for those who are interested in history, it, it is, it is uh, without question the North, 
because it was uh, what side was it on during the Civil War. And in the South, they take that very seriously. What side you're on in the Civil War makes a big difference even to this day. You can be at a meeting in, in, in Atlanta and people will say, well, you know, it's raining, just, it's raining so hard, it's just like when Sherman came in and, and tore down Atlanta, thinking, it's things like that. <laughs> <laughs> they do. And so it's like Washington, D.C., in fact, there's a beautiful quote in the, um, in the book from, uh, that comes from uh, a book that I was reading about, and I, I thought it was so beautiful that I wanted to include it in this one, and it was from a man who was in Georgia who was asked as he was preparing to leave Georgia, where was he going to go? And he said, I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. And of course now Washington, D.C. encompasses, you know, the idea of it encompasses all of, all of the metropolitan area. But he said, I'm going to Washington, D.C. And they said, well, why are you going to Washington, D.C.? And they said, I want to be as near to the flag as I can get. <laughs> and I just thought that showed you how that desperation and that desire to be fully American and to be able to experience all the rights and privileges that came with citizenship, but they had not been able experience in the South. And so these people were, this was one of the migration streams. And that stream, Washington, D.C. was the first stop. And a lot of people got off in Washington and said, this is far enough. I don't need to go to <laughs> This is fine. But of course, it would carry people to Philadelphia, to Boston, to Baltimore, Philadelphia, and then New York, and then all not to Boston. The uh, second stream was the Midwest stream, which took people from uh, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, uh, Tennessee and Arkansas up to Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Cincinnati, uh, Minneapolis, and, and the entire Midwest. And then the final stream was that which took people from Texas and Louisiana out to California. Those people had, uh, had they went farther than many people come, who come from other countries, they from parts of Mexico. Their migration was farther than that from many people who were actually immigrants, truly immigrants to this country. So these people were going a long ways away in order to get to the freedom that had not come from the Emancipation Proclamation. They're the ones that had to actually make it happen for themselves. And that's why I find them so inspiring. The Great Migration unleashed African-American talent, making it a culture force that reshaped everything from literature, sports, and music. Here, Isabel explains how the Great Migration changed America's ear for music. The American ear, and I would argue the human ear, is different as a result of the Great Migration. We simply would not be listening to the kind of music that we listen to had there been no Great Migration. And that is because every musical form of the 20th century was informed by, if not completely created by, the migration of these people taking the folk music of the South, the blues and the spirituals and the gospels, coming to the big cities of the North and the, and the West and the Midwest, and having that music be informed and shaped by the exposure to the, and the metabolism of the northern cities, and most importantly, being recorded. I mean, they were making beautiful music with their with their twelve string guitars in um, the delta of Mississippi, but no one was hearing it other than themselves. Only when they left could people hear it, and there are people all over the world who heard it. When it comes to jazz. Jazz simply would not be what it is had there been a great migration. Miles Davis, his parents migrated from Arkansas to Illinois where he had the luxury really, which he would not have had in the cotton country of Arkansas, to spend hours upon hours that are necessary to become the genius that he, to de develop the genius that was within him um, musically. And then when it gets to Motown, Motown simply would not have existed. Absolutely there is no way and Motown would have existed had there been no Great Migration. And that's because Barry Gordy, um, my, his parents migrated from Georgia to Detroit. For all that the Great Migration represented as a social and cultural force, 
It is a watershed moment in America and human history that changed all of our lives. As Isabel remarks on this moment in history, its impact and why we are unlikely to see anything like it again in America. The Great Migration in some ways can't be replicated because of the fact that this was a defection as much as it was. It was not simply moving because your job has transferred you to another place. This was, a, this was a watershed moment in American history that helped pave the way for the civil rights movement and all the freedoms that we have. Remember, in those days when this migration began, they left at great peril. They left not knowing if they would ever return and see their homeland again or even look into the face of their parents again. They also, uh, once they left, they ended up uh, having to, uh, they ended up leaving and proving to the South that the lowest caste members of, of our country were, they had options, first, for the first time in history, had options and were willing to take them. That was a huge message to the South. It's one reason why the South was so nervous about them leaving. Secondly, they ended up providing haven for the people who stayed in the South who ultimately would be the ones who were facing those dogs and the fire hoses. They provided haven. They also provided um, an inspiration for those people who were leaving because they had a chance to see what freedom felt like whenever they would go and visit a loved one, a cousin, or someone when they came to visit. And they also offered hope because they would come back and visit the people back home. So they were constantly visiting and, and giving inspiration. So there was a lot going on. In other words, this great migration helped pave the way for the civil rights movement that we now can take for granted. Because the civil rights movement would have happened, but it would have happened later had there not been some, had the South not seen this outpouring of its lifeblood, meaning the workers. They, they had to be, they had to realize that they could no longer take advantage of this oversupply of labor. So what I'm trying to say is that there is a continuum, a long continuum, of what it has taken to get us to this point. From Emancipation Proclamation, which did not live up to its name, did not come into effect until the people made themselves free by leaving, which is an inspiration to all of us, that freedom is within us. And then paved the way for the Civil Rights Movement, because Martin Luther King was one of the people who participated in the Great Migration, by going to Boston University, where he met his wife, Coretta Scott, and then returned home inspired by realizing now what the possibilities were, what it felt like to be treated as a full human being, and he went back and led the civil rights movement. So there's a direct connection. And these people in the original migration were sending money back home to the parents, the grandparents that they might not have been able to see, but they were sending money back home to support both the families and the civil rights movement. So the great migration helped to lead the way to the South changing which made it possible for there to be a reverse migration for the children and the grandchildren now. The people who were part of the original migration did not want to return and often were frightened for their children even to this day who might be living in the South now because they still harbor and experience. They, they are still living with the, uh, the heartbreak and the pain of what they endured. But the children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, are not burdened with that because the sacrifices of the people of the Great Migration helped lead to change in the South, which makes it possible for their own children and grandchildren to return. And that's how this is all connected. We hope you enjoyed our show today, and certainly we went from Africa to China back through America, and we always look forward to spending travel time with you every week. 
and certainly to connecting with you during the week on our social networks, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and others. So follow us on those platforms, sign up for our newsletter and our travel deals at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.